0: This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Any of you ever had uh, someone pull a bait and switch on you? You know that, that type of thing where, like, they lure you in with something without really giving you the whole story, and but then once you've taken the bait, they uh, they switch it out for something else and give you the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. And you're left thinking, like, this is not what I signed up for. I was going to say that, and then I'm like, but what if there's a used car salesman here in the room? And I was like, I'd be the guy that defended the used car salesman. So here's another one, though. Say you go to buy something online. And, you know, you're like, you think I'm going to pay this much. Right? I'm going to pay about this much with my special online discount code, and then you go to checkout, and it's like right after you've put all that credit card information in, which takes you like five hours, and then you find out you're paying this much because of all the hidden fees and surcharges, aren't you? Like, especially, did anybody get to go see uh, Taylor Swift this weekend? Man, none of y'all were lucky enough to go do that. I'm sorry. I wanted to go. I didn't get to go. You go buy tickets for a concert, you're getting... Surcharges at the end, aren't you? It feels like a bait and switch. And you might even feel like God has pulled a bit of a bait and switch on you. Like you, you, may have had people tell you, like, he is gonna completely transform your life, of how different your life is gonna be. And so you 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 invited Jesus into your heart. You you said the prayer, you you answered the altar call, you you did whatever it was they told you to do because you you wanted that. And then you found that nothing changed, at least not in the way that you hoped it would. Life's still hard. In fact, it got harder, didn't it? You're, uh, instead of 365 days of sunshine like they promised, it feels like there's one storm after another crashing in on you. You're, 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 you're struggling to make ends meet. You're, you're barely staying afloat. You're, the suffering is unbearable. You still have questions and doubts, in fact, even more than you did before. Right? Your life, it doesn't look anything like the brochure they handed you at the beginning, does it? And you're left thinking, this is not what I signed up for. Now, this is not the weather forecast I was promised. The thing is, Jesus didn't pull a bait and switch on anyone. He's not trying to trick anyone into following him. He's not hiding anything. No, he tells us exactly what to expect. He tells us exactly what following him will cost. No hidden fees, no hidden surcharges. What we need to do is we simply need to stop and we need to listen to the words of Jesus so that we know exactly what it is that we're signing up for. And that's what we're gonna see this morning as we continue looking at this collection of stories of signs and wonders that Matthew has gathered together here in chapters 8 and 9, stories that give us a glimpse into the nature of this this kingdom that has come but not yet in full, a glimpse into the authority that Jesus has as its king over this kingdom, and a glimpse into those whom he has welcomed into this kingdom, And in this morning's story of Jesus calming the storm, we're going to see two things. We're going to see the cost of following Jesus as he responds to two individuals who who asked to follow him, correcting their misunderstandings of what it means to follow him. And second, we're going to see the comforting presence of Jesus in the storms of life as he responds to his disciples who have chosen to follow him, revealing who it is that we follow and so if you haven't already, let's take out our Bibles, open them up to the New Testament book of Matthew, first book of the New Testament. We're in uh, chapter 8 this morning, verses 18 through whenever we get done preaching, 27 it is. And uh, look down with me here at verse 18. Matthew writes, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Now like we saw a couple weeks ago, um, we see movement in, in this opening verse of the story as Matthew, he, he transitions a few things here. Uh, the first is there's there's relational movement here. Uh, the people, the crowds that had gathered, they were, they were infatuated with, with Jesus, watching his healings, listening to his teachings. He was, he was their reality TV star, and they binge-watched this show for three straight years before they canceled him, and he had to go off the air for a bit. But Jesus, he, he's ready to get away. He, he needs to catch his breath for a hot second. And he wants to go and just be with his inner circle for a bit. And so there's relational movement. But second, there's geographical movement. Uh, He's he's leaving now the city of Capernaum on the the northwest shore of Galilee to go to the other side of the lake, to go over to the eastern shore, to an area known as uh, the Decapolis, uh, named because of the ten major cities that existed in that region. But there's also cultural movement happening here. He's leaving a predominantly Jewish uh, area, uh, uh, influenced by Jewish culture, and he's going to a very Gentile, a very pagan area, heavily influenced by, by Greek culture. And it's this cultural movement that Matthew's often referring to when he says that he's going to the other side. And so Jesus, as, he, as he's making his way through town, making his way down to the dock, uh, the, the, the disciples, they're preparing the boat, and on the way, he has a couple of conversations with these onlookers who, who have gathered and, and approached Jesus. It's a, a little Q&A with the reality TV star. And their questions, their statements to Jesus, they reveal something. They reveal their expectations of Jesus, of what they assume it is going to be like to follow Jesus. And his answers reveal how wrong their assumptions and expectations are, showing the cost of following Jesus. And so first, he interacts with a scribe. A scribe was a, an expert in uh, Jewish law and the Hebrew Scriptures. someone who was privileged not only to have the ability to read the written word, but they had access to the written word, right? We probably got like five Bibles at home, don't we? One in the car, one in your pocket, Um they were reading off big scrolls. Not everybody had this. They had that, that privilege. And so the scribe, he comes up to Jesus and he says to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. But what we see is he approached Jesus with expectations. Expectations of what he would do based on assumptions of who he is. That he was a teacher, he says. Someone who was likely well-respected by others. He... He, he saw Jesus in the crowds. He saw someone with power and, and influence doing great things, healing and casting out demons. He saw someone who, who had apparently built this massive platform, had a huge following drawing massive crowds. And he was drawn to that. But not only that, he wanted that for himself. And so he has to follow him. He he's asking uh, this teacher, this rabbi. He's asking to study under him, to learn from him. This is in some sense his uh, grad school application, right? He was just a, it's just a verbal one. Can I follow you? Yes or no? That would be a great grad school application. He has to follow him, formalizing this teacher discipleship relationship, where a disciple. Uh, would typically come under the care and protection and provision of a teacher or a rabbi for a limited period of time until their studies were complete and and that comes at a cost right if if you've gone back to school in any way whether it was a GED or associates or bachelor's or or grad school like you know that comes at a cost it it costs you time It cost you money, it cost you lots of sleep, it cost you relationships, it cost you even more money and even more sleep. And the scribe, he knew this, he knew it was going to cost him something, but while he said he would go wherever and do whatever, Jesus knew that his commitment came with an asterisk. While he said he would go and do whatever, there was a limit, There was a limit to how far he was willing to go. There was a limit to how much he was willing to give up. And there was a limit to how long he was willing to follow. There was a cost that he was not willing to pay. And Jesus, knowing this, he responds to the scribes saying, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he's essentially asking the scribe, he's like, are you, sh- are you sure about this? Because I don't, I don't think you fully understand what it is you're asking, what it is you're signing up for. He's like, let's be following me. It's not glamorous. It's not comfortable. Because we're not flying first class. We're not staying in five-star resorts. We're not eating, eating at Michelin-rated restaurants. See, Jesus, he, uh, he was an itinerant traveling ministry. Meaning, uh, he was entirely at the mercy uh, of the hospitality of others wherever he went. He, he, he came into town having no idea where he would eat, what he would eat, or if he would eat. Uh, he, he didn't have an admin booking a hotel room for him in the next leg of his tour, in the next town down the road. No, Jesus, he, 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 was, he was a vagabond who lived a very migrant lifestyle that was actually very looked down upon. By his culture, he was viewed as a migrant who mooched off others. And so whereas the scribe thought following Jesus would elevate his own status, Jesus wanted him to know that it would actually lower his status. And whereas the scribe thought following Jesus would bring about security and comfort, Jesus wanted him to know it would bring about scarcity and suffering. Because as Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes in The Cost of Discipleship, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come And die. You see how there is no bait and switch here. There's no hidden fees. There's no false promise of a comfortable life when following Jesus, that the King of Kings, who himself had nowhere to lay his head in his own kingdom, right? That the one who created everything gave up everything, homeless in his own creation. It's when Jesus calls you to follow him. He's not inviting you on an all-inclusive cruise. But to join him in in denying yourself just as he did. Inviting you to pick up and carry your cross just as he did. Following this suffering servant on, on a journey. No matter where he leads you, no matter what it costs you, knowing there is no cost too great to follow Jesus. Amen? No cost too great. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, we, we, we probably all have a limit. We have a, a line that we're not willing to cross, a cost that feels like it's too much. And you don't know it till you get there. And so I want us to think for a second. Ask yourself, how far are you willing to go to follow Jesus? How far are you willing to go? How far is too far? Right, like, where are you not willing to go? But also ask yourself, how much are you willing to give up to follow Jesus? How much is too much? What is it that you are not willing to give up, that you will hold with a tight, closed fist? What is that line for you? What is that limit for you? And while the first interaction with a scribe reveals how we're prone to put limits on following Jesus. His Seneca interaction reveals how we're prone to put conditions on following Jesus. About then, another of his, uh, the disciples and here, he's, he's not referring to one of the 12, but uh, simply someone from the crowd who's been following him for a little while. Uh, he comes up and he says to Jesus, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. He's saying, like, I got some other things I got to do. So you guys, you go on ahead. I'll, I'll take the next boat. I'll catch up with you later. That sound good? And there's a couple things we need to understand about first century Jewish culture in order to better understand this request. Uh, and the first is on burying their dead. Uh, see, rather than waiting days or even weeks for the funeral, as, as we often do now, um, They would typically bury their dead within about 24 hours, same day even, if possible. And the body would be placed in a tomb. And over the course of the next year, uh, it would decompose. And then after that year, the eldest son, he had the responsibility to come back and to collect the bones and to put them in in an ossuary, in in a box. The second thing we need to understand is that of honoring their parents. Um, if, if the first two commands uh, of having no other gods and worshiping no other gods other than God is priority one, which it is, right? That is kind of priority one. We all good with that one, okay? Uh, if that's priority one, uh, they viewed the fifth commandment of honoring your mother and father as like a 1B. It was right there with those. And so what's likely happening here? is this guy who's been with Jesus for a little while now, he, he's asking to take a break. Can I like take a time out on this whole following Jesus thing and step away for a bit? I'm, I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna be with my dad who uh, he may very well be uh, ill or even near death. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna go wait with him until he dies so that I'm able to bury my father. And then, and then I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna start following you again. I'll pick it back up. And like it kind of sounds like a reasonable request, doesn't it? And so how do you think Jesus responds? He says to him, follow me. Uh, this, This present imperative of continually following, never stopping following, always following. Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. I'm sorry, what? Like, let's be honest, that doesn't sound much like Jesus, does it? Like, did we get like a scribal error in our Bible here? It doesn't sound loving. It doesn't sound compassionate. It, in fact, it sounds harsh. It, it even sounds like he's asking him to disobey the fifth commandment, to defying God and dishonoring his, his elderly father. But let's not forget who it is that's saying this. Let's not forget who Jesus is. He is Messiah. He is the fulfillment of the Mosaic law. He is the one that the entire Hebrew Old Testament scriptures pointed to. He is the one in whom all the promises of God find their yes. And as Messiah, what Jesus is saying is that nothing should ever be prioritized above him. That nothing should ever stand in the way of faithfully following him. To the point that he's gonna go on in chapter 10 to say, whoever loves your father and mother or son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You've broken the first two commands. When God says you shall have no other gods before me, he means that. That even that our families, our spouses, our children, our larger extended families, our friends, our communities, they can all become an idol that we worship, placing them ahead of God. And when we do, like the disciples, we're prone to make following Jesus conditional. We want to write our own, negotiate our own terms and conditions and write them into the contract. Essentially saying, yeah, I'm good. I'm going to follow you as long as it's convenient for me. As long as it fits into my schedule, I'm good. Uh, Assuming, you know, I don't have anything else going on. Assuming that my calendar's clear. But here's the thing. We pursue what we prioritize, don't we? We pursue what we prioritize, and you will never pursue Jesus if you do not prioritize following Jesus. See what happens is, like the disciple, we we create this sort of sacred secular divide, if you will. We recognize Jesus as Lord over portions of our lives, but not the entirety of our lives. We give Jesus Sunday morning from 10:05 to 11:25, and then we get the rest. And what Jesus is saying here is he's not going to have that. That's not an option. He's not negotiating terms. He is either Lord over the entirety of your life, every aspect of your life, every moment of your life, or none of it. It is all or nothing. Now, about now, our minds start thinking of some things, and so please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that every free-waking moment of every day must be spent in church, reading your Bible, on your knees in prayer, as though only those spiritual things are what matter. That, that, That reduces following Jesus to a list of tasks that we do, and that is far too narrow a view of what it means to faithfully follow the way of Jesus. Now... Following Jesus obviously includes things like being an active participant in a local church, right? Member of the body of Christ. It includes regular participation in the deepening of our awareness of God and affection of God through the spiritual practices. It includes those two things. But it also includes things like, like making Sabbath, uh, Sabbath rest a regular rhythm in your life and napping to the glory of God. Amen? You have been given permission to nap. The second part of the story is going to be real good. You'll see why I say that. It includes Sabbath rest. It includes investing in our mental health and emotional well-being, meaning there may be times when you need to temporarily step back from certain responsibilities and certain relationships for a period of time. It means caring for our physical bodies. Our bodies matter, right? And caring for all of God's creation. It, it involves living out your faith in your vocation, whatever that may be. In your workplace, in your school, in your home. By, by, by doing your job well. Doing it with integrity. Integrity. And it involves loving your neighbor, loving those people God has placed in your lives and loving them as yourself, living out the great command of loving God and loving others. Because here's the thing, if Jesus is truly Lord over every aspect of your life, then he will impact the way you live out every aspect of your life, won't he? Nothing standing in your way of faithfully following the way of Jesus every moment of every day. And so I want to ask What's standing in your way? What, what barriers have you created and built that stand between you and Jesus? What, what are you prioritizing ahead of Jesus? What, what conditions are you negotiating into the contract with Jesus? After these two interactions... As Matthew shows us the cost of following Jesus, following without limits, following without conditions, he goes on to show us the comforting presence of Jesus as we follow him throughout this life, knowing that he is, he is with us wherever he leads us, that he is in whatever he leads us into. And so Jesus, he, he continues making his way through the crowds. He gets down to the docks there in Capernaum, and he gets in the boat and in verse 24, it says they, they start to make their way across the Sea of Galilee, and it says, behold, that's one of those, like, pay attention now, behold, there arose there, there a great storm on the sea, so great that the boat was being swamped by the waters. They were, they were sweeping over the boat. And like, remember that map earlier? Um, the, the Sea of Galilee, it looks like that big on the map, doesn't it? Like, it's like a glorified pond, you know? Um, That's not that intimidating. It's not like it's the Mediterranean Sea where we can't even see the other side. But storms here were actually uh, quite common. The the, the unique geography of the Sea of Galilee, the the water level is actually like 600 feet below sea level. And the the mountains are at about 2,600 feet rising above it. And and so that unique geography created these sudden downdrifts from the east wind coming off the mountains, causing intense and, and unexpected storms resulting in waves that would crest six, seven, eight feet, which it might not seem a lot for a cruise ship out in the Mediterranean, but um, they're huge if you're on a little little fishing boat like the minnow for a three-hour tour. You might get shipwrecked and left for a long time. But also, if you remember back to chapter 4, the the first four disciples Jesus calls, Peter and Andrew and James and John, these, these were experienced fishermen. This wasn't their first rodeo. They they knew this lake. They had been through the storms. They were used to this, and yet this storm was different. It was violent. It was furious. They were terrified. They were panicking. They were were freaking out because the waves are like, they're overtaking the boat. Water's coming in, and, and they can't scoop it out fast enough. They're freaking out, but not Jesus. You know what Jesus is doing? I gave you a hint a few minutes ago. What's Jesus doing? taking a nap. He's curled up on a cushion in the back of the boat, sleeping, sound asleep, taking a nap. And so eventually the disciples, they, 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 they give up. They're freaking out, they're panicked. they can't save themselves, and so they, they went to the back of the boat, which again, it's a tiny boat, so it's sort of like, going to the back of the boat, it looked like this. Now I'm in the back of the boat. Uh, and they, they, they woke Jesus up, and, and what they did was they, they whispered to him, psst, Jesus. Are you awake? So your, your kids ever do that to you? Like, no, I'm not awake. Can, can you hear me? Um, I think we have a problem. We need you. No, that is not what they did. It was more like, save us, Lord. We're going to drown. We're going to die. They're panicking. That, that's basically how I sound in the morning when I go to make coffee and there's no more Coffee. And so Jesus, he woke up and he's freaking out of the storm. No, he didn't. He was more like, why are you so afraid, oh, you of little faith? Why is this, thank God, you so worked up? What are you so freaked out about? It, it, it almost feels like Jesus is leading a little spiritual uh, direction session there in the back of the boat in the middle of the storm. He's like, so, so let's think about this. Let's reflect on this for a second. Why do you think you're feeling what you're feeling? What might God be saying to you in the midst of this? Meanwhile, Jesus, he gets up. He wipes the, the crusties out of his eyes. Jesus was fully man, fully God and fully man. He had crusties in his eyes when he slept. He gets up and he rebukes the wind and the waves. He, he, he quiets the chaos of the seas, commanding them, silence. And immediately, there was a great calm. Suddenly the sea became smooth as glass. Peterson writes in the message. But Jesus, he he wasn't mad at him because they came to him and asked something of him. He wants that. He wasn't mad at him for disturbing him and waking him up from his nap. He wasn't telling him to go away and come back later. He and he didn't just calm the storm so he could get back to sleep because he was so tired. He wasn't mad. He. Jesus wasn't even rebuking them for being afraid as though their fear was an indication of the absence of faith. I mean, there was a, there's a phrase we heard quite a bit a couple of years ago, especially from professing Christians. Uh, we would hear a lot of times, uh, faith over fear. Remember that one? Faith over fear is though faith and fear are somehow mutually exclusive and cannot coexist. If you have faith, you will never be afraid. I, I missed that page in my Bible. Calvin, he writes, fear in the ordinary sense, it is not opposed to faith. They're not two north magnets repelling each other. No, the reason that he said that they were of little faith is because of their failure to rest in the presence of his divine authority in the midst of the storm. Their faith had not yet matured to the point of seeing above their fear and seeing beyond the storm that they were facing. It had not yet matured to the point of trusting that Jesus was there with them in the storm, comforted by his presence. It had not yet matured to the level of trusting Jesus to lead them through the storm, following him in spite of their fear, following without limits, following without conditions. And that's why, like, in spite of all the signs and wonders these guys have seen already, these these men who who just moments ago were terrified, now they stood in amazement. They marveled at what they had just seen, asking in verse 27, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? And they knew Jesus was powerful. They had seen some things seen glimpses of his authority over the chaos that exists within creation. That's why they referred to him as Lord. They knew, but they didn't yet know in full. They still did not yet recognize him as the mighty one who is faithful, ruling the raging seas, bringing stillness to the rising waves, as the psalmist writes in Psalm 89. And it's easy for us to look back and be like, how did they not get it? They wouldn't know in full what sort of man this was until he displayed the fullness of his power and authority through his own resurrection from the dead, defeating death, vindicated that he was indeed the promised Messiah, the one who God had sent. He was who he said he was. And like our lives are a lot like that Sea of Galilee, aren't they? Storms coming up on us violently, unexpectedly. And often our response is a lot like the disciples caught in the storm. We're we're caught off guard by the storm. We're surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon us. Thinking, Jesus should have prevented that. Does he not know what I've done? He should have prevented that. He should have diverted that storm. It feels like he pulled a bait and switch on you, doesn't it? Sometimes we feel that, but sometimes we feel the other way. Sometimes we feel that maybe my fear represents an absence of faith. If I am so afraid, maybe I don't truly believe. When in fact, what I want us to see in this story is that truth faith in Jesus, it leads us to facing our fears. It's not the absence of fears, it's the facing of fears. Acknowledging, you know what? I'm afraid of that storm. I'm afraid of what it might do. I'm afraid of what it might take from me. And then in the midst of that storm, trusting in Jesus, comforted by his presence, the peace that we find in Christ, trusting in Jesus and following Jesus as he leads us, not around the storm, but he leads us through the storm, following in spite of our fears, following without limits, following without conditions, wherever he leads, whatever it costs us. Amen? Faith and fear are not mutually exclusive. Here in the story of Jesus calming the storm, we are given yet another glimpse, a glimpse uh, of this kingdom of peace that has come, but not yet in full, not until Christ returns. Uh, Of the peace that our king, the prince of peace, will usher in upon his return, a new heaven and a new earth. All that is wrong will be right all that is broken, restored, our own dead bodies resurrected. And the peace that we as his subjects and his followers that we have already begun to experience, a taste of that peace, that's who was in the boat. That is who was with them in the storm and that is who is with you right now in this very moment. That is why we can be comforted in the presence of Emmanuel, God with us, through the presence of his spirit, God dwelling within us, the source of our faith, the sustainer of our faith in the storm, in the midst of fear, so that we are no longer driven by our fear of the storms that may come, but led by our faith in Jesus through the storms that do come. A question Jesus often asks at the end of a story is do you believe that? you've heard it, you've read it, but do you believe this? Will this truth from God change the way in which you live? Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.